I wonder, Christian, in this holiday season, which of course has already begun this week, I wonder what do you find yourself praying about? What do you find in terms of content that fills your prayers? I ask because what we pray about reflects who we think God is. And it shows us what we think provides confidence for life, especially in the face of trials. Right? What we pray about reflects who we think God is. And it shows us what we, where we think confidence is really found in this life. So, for example, if we ask for stuff, right, maybe you think that God is glorifying Santa Claus. And, and therefore you think, you know, confidence, happiness, and joy comes from getting new things or obtaining more and more things. Maybe we find ourselves asking for better circumstances. Maybe, you know, a larger retirement account, more money here or there, or less joint pain. Maybe if we find ourselves praying about these things most or primarily, maybe we think that God is some sort of glorified financial planner or that he is this doctor, a glorified doctor. And so confidence, therefore, comes in security, whatever it is that we find security in, retirement, account, health, whatever it is. Maybe it's even in the freedom that we can experience with money. Maybe it's in escaping pain or living a comfortable idea, a comfortable life. Anyways, you know, you guys get the point here. What is it that you guys have been praying for? And what does it reflect about who you think God is and where you find security? In our passage today, the apostles of Jesus are definitely in a trial, right? They are desperate. They suffer persecution. And we read of the prayer of the the apostles It's like a little window into their soul to think about where they find confidence in and who their God is. I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We are in verses 21 to 31. Go ahead and turn there with me right now. Uh, We continue walking through the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles, as it is also known. It was written by a doctor named Luke. And uh, he also wrote the Gospel of Luke. So if the Gospel of Luke is about the ministry of Jesus here on earth up until the point where, you know, he dies and he rises again. Well, the book of Acts, or Acts of the Apostles, is about the ministry of Jesus in heaven. It looks looks at how Christ worked through the apostles, in the power of the Spirit, to build his church. And in Luke and Acts, Luke there is setting forward, giving us a reliable account of all that Jesus did here on earth, as well as in heaven, as he continues to work. We saw that even though the church is very much in its infancy, right, we're only in Acts chapter 4, even though the church is in its infancy, the apostles are certainly off to a very rough start. It's only been like two or three months after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, after Christ poured out his spirit, and already Christ's apostles are being persecuted for teaching in the name of Christ, that salvation is found in him and in him alone. And this certainly spells trouble for the apostles. I mean, the rulers, the authorities, they just killed Jesus. But yet, this Jesus, his name lives on? That's what they're thinking, right? The apostles are preaching in his name. They're doing signs and miracles in his name, just as God told them that he would. In chapter 3, the apostles heal a crippled man in the name of this Jesus. They explain to everyone watching there at the temple that this is evidence that Christ is Lord of creation. Power to heal the body and, more importantly, 
power to heal the soul and forgive people of their sins. If you guys were the rulers, right? You just flung so much energy to kill this Jesus. What would you do? I mean, what could you do? The dude they healed is right there. Everybody knows who he is. They knew they couldn't keep the apostles in prison for this good deed. So what's the next best thing? It's to control them. 418, 418, go ahead and look there. So they charged them, the apostles, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And what is Peter's response? He is so incredibly bold. Look there in verse 20. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They are let go. And this is where our passage picks up here. Acts chapter 3, sorry, Acts chapter 4, verse 21. I'm going to go ahead and read that there right now. Sorry, 23, 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the nation, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand and heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Who is God that the Christian prays to? And where can confidence be found? Especially when suffering for the faith, we see from our passage, and we get a chance to look here at who their God is and where confidence comes from. That's what we're going to do for the next four points here. We see, or three points here, we see that Christians, point number one, Christians pray to God who is sovereign. Again, we're looking at who is the Christian's God and where does confidence come from? Well, confidence comes from God who is sovereign. Point number one, Christians pray to God who is sovereign. It's super clear there in verse 24, the apostles pray to the sovereign Lord or ultimate ruler. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. You guys know if you've been visiting with us for a while, you've probably heard us talk about the sovereignty of God. I can't even remember the last time it was that I did not talk about the sovereignty of God. I mean, what is it that Christians acknowledge when we say that God is sovereign? Well, you see here from the passage, first, God is the creator of everything. And therefore, he has creator rights over his very creation. He made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This obviously points back to God and what he had done at the beginning. You think of Genesis. He brings the universe into being with the power of his word. And then Colossians says that it is through Christ that all things were made. All things were made through him and for him, Colossians 1 says. But not only is he over all things, right? I think that's a, that's a pretty obvious definition of sovereign or ultimate ruler. Not only does, speaking of God's sovereignty, mention the things that he is over and the authority he carries as he exercises authority over all things. It also speaks about, biblically, 
the fact that God accomplishes everything that he wants. He accomplishes all that he pleases. Just listen to what God declares about himself through the prophet Isaiah, for example. This is just one example. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purposes. <laughs> that's, that's ultimate rulership right there. Think of Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Or what Job says, no purpose of the Lord can be thwarted. That, friends, is absolute power. Not in a bad, tyrannical way. Thank God God is loving and faithful, and so he wields this power for his glory and his people's good. Not one of his purposes can be thwarted. The creation of the world and everything in it. The election of his people unto salvation. The sending of the eternal Son to take on flesh, to then die on the cross to accomplish salvation. Think about the establishment of his kingdom once and for all. In it all, in every single detail, the purposes of the Lord will stand. Now, what do you guys think is the big deal for the apostles as they sit there and pray to God? Why is that such a big deal? You should be thinking about this as we just study the word of God here. It's a big deal because they have a big God and that God is on their side. It's a big deal to have the sovereign ruler, the ultimate ruler over everything on your side, given persecution from these earthly rulers. Remember, the, remember those who, who arrested the apostles, they had the power to not only arrest, but to imprison, to certainly interrogate, and to carry out capital punishment, which they just did with Jesus, and which they are going to do in the next few chapters here of the book of Acts. So friends, you guys realize that if you were dragged before the council here, and you struggle with the fear of man, this is a situation that would certainly make you feel crushed. But these disciples, right, they don't cower. Instead, they have confidence here. Confidence because of the one they call on. Why is it that they have confidence in the face of such persecution? Right after, right after they've been arrested, imprisoned, interrogated, commanded to shut up. Why is it that they have confidence? Because of the one that they call on. Verse 21, after they get released from jail, they go to their friends and they lifted up their voices to pray. Interesting how that's so instinctual here, at least it is in Acts chapter 4. It's instinctual that in the face of trial, they lift their voices and call on the power of heaven. What is your instinct? I know a lot of you guys are in trials right now. What's your instinct? Who is it that you lift your voice up to? Are you tempted to speak into the mirror with a little bit more confidence? That you can handle the trials and the temptations of your day. That you can conquer all the obstacles right there before you and climb all the mountains. Or do you lift your voice up to the sovereign Lord, the ultimate ruler, calling on him to be who he is and to do all that he has already promised in Christ. Friends, you guys realize, as I mentioned this before, that's the substance of prayer. It is calling on God to be who he has said he is, and to do all that he has promised in Christ. Not like begging, like, oh Lord, I'm not sure if you're going to be who you say you are. No, it is calling upon him knowing he is who he says he is. 
and that he will do everything that he has promised in Jesus Christ. Christian, our confidence is as strong as the one we call on. Our confidence is as strong as the one we call on, or at least it ought to be, given who he is who he says he is. Now, this should be hugely encouraging in trials because our Lord is strong. He is the sovereign ruler. And so, guys, in your difficult situations, right, you may feel that something else, even right now, is exercising some sort of power or tyranny over you. Right? You might even say that this thing is like so powerful you can't escape it. It is sovereign. Maybe you're being mocked for your faith. And you think they, the mockers, are sovereign over your life. They've crushed your reputation. They've crushed your hope for just regular human friendship at work. Maybe what you experience, just to to go on with further application, is, is that you've been sinned against, deeply sinned against. And you think that somebody else, right, that that person who has sinned against you has crushed you. And maybe you feel so stuck and helpless in some sort of situation, the situation that you're in. Or maybe what you wrestle with is the ugliness of your own sin. And the sin that you wrestle with, you think, still exercises some sort of power and tyranny over you. And you know that it is so frustrating. You're so tempted to just give up. Let me ask you, when you're on your knees... Who is the one that you turn to? Our passage reminds us that there is one who can be trusted no matter the situation. There is one in whom we can have confidence. That is the sovereign God, our sovereign God, the ultimate ruler, the authority whose grace is sufficient and who has promised to raise us up in Christ. So if you've been sinned against, he is the one who gives comfort to the hurting. He is the one who empowers you to love and to forgive just as he has loved and forgiven you. If you're suffering from your own sin, Christ is the one who destroys the tyranny of sin and exercises his own dominion over it. Praise God for that. Do you trust in your sovereign God? A great marker as to whether you trust in God or not is whether you go to him in prayer calling on him to be who he is and to do what he has promised in Christ. So, friends, look at your prayers over the last week. Look at your prayers even this morning. Were you going to your sovereign God? I wonder how the content of your prayers reflect your trust in who he is. It's a fantastic question. You can just think about all the different aspects of Christ and who he is, all of his different attributes, and think, how do your prayers reflect the fact that that is my God? How do my prayers reflect the fact that God is the sovereign one? Uh, that is just really fascinating. I mean, do we give praise for God's sovereignty in our prayers, even in difficult situations? Are we acknowledging that he actually, by his own divine purposes, is using trials in our life to perfect and refine our faith? And so therefore we trust him in his sovereignty. When it comes to loving those who don't believe, right? We want to see them know Jesus. How is it that our prayers for them and that God would act reflect God's sovereignty? You could do, we could do this, you know, with everything. How do our prayers reflect that God is the one who is present with his people? 
Are you guys calling on God to give you comfort or that God would comfort others who are in the midst of suffering? How do, our, how do your prayers reflect that God is a lover of his people, not just the sovereign God, God who is present in love? Does your language reflect the fact that God is a lover of his people? Do you love him? How do your prayers reflect that God is merciful after your sins, after you have sinned? We could do this on and on and on. It's a, it's a great, it's a great uh, challenge for us to reflect on how the language of our prayers reflect our understanding of God, rightly or wrongly. And then where we see it being wrong, then we go back to the Word so that the Word would inform our prayers. For these Christians, despite being persecuted by earthly rulers, they are confident. Why? It's because they know that God is the ultimate ruler. And so they plead the help of heaven. They know while others may rage against Christ and against Christ's people, God's will will not be thwarted. This brings us to point number two. Point number two, they pray to God whose will cannot be thwarted. An awesome passage that speaks about God's will and purposes in Christ is in Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul speaks of God's climat- the climactic point of God's salvation history. Brought to fulfillment, set forth in Christ, quote, as a plan for the fullness of time according to his purpose. God has revealed and foretold of this salvation plan in Christ in the Old Testament that though throughout the Bible, right, but, but here, right there working with the Old Testament, though we as man had rebelled against our only creator, nevertheless, God determined to hold out salvation and reconciliation and forgiveness in Christ. Right? In spite of our sin, God wills a certain something, and that certain something is salvation for rebels. Praise God, His will cannot be thwarted, because He loves all. He doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants all to repent and believe. If you're visiting with us and know yourself to be exploring Christianity, you see just how loving and merciful God is, as He will not let any of His purposes, here think of salvation, He will not let His purposes of the salvation of even the worst of sinners fall to the ground in vain. You see just how loving and merciful God is. I find this so encouraging as a fellow sinner. Again, as God created us all, He created us to be in a relationship with Him, a loving relationship. But man rebelled against Him. What does God do with His purpose to save? Does He say, ah, forget it. I can't do anything about it. No, He doesn't do that. And even, even despite every moment where we are sinning against God, God still upholds his plan and his will and his purposes to save sinners in Christ. Where we see, where we sin, what do we see in Scripture? He meets that with grace. All according to his purposes. He persists. Where we persist in sin, he persists in love and faithfulness. And one day, fulfilling his promise to send his eternal son to save us from our sins. How does he do this? He lives the righteous life that we should have. As the Lord commanded us to live righteously, we failed. We couldn't do that. Man cannot do that. And who comes in and saves the day? Christ lives the life that we could not. He dies the death we should have. As sinners who had rebelled, we deserve God's wrath and judgment. Christ comes bearing the sin and the wrath that his people deserved. That, friends, is persistence. The eternal Son of God... Bearing with our sin, entering into our experience, taking on human nature, 
persistently, determinedly living the faithful life and dying on the cross, suffering at the hands of those he desires to be saved. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus, that sinners can be saved through faith in him, not according to our own works, but his his work on the cross. We can be reconciled with God. We can be forgiven of our sins and adopted into his family and know God now, not as judge who's going to judge us eternally, but loving father adopted into his family. All of the Bible speaks of Christ. Friends, if you're visiting as a non-Christian, this is the gospel. That we can be saved. Sinners can be saved. That's why they're going around preaching the gospel. That's why they pray for boldness. And for you, this means for you, you can know this salvation. You can know this God, your creator. If you turn from your sin and you believe on him, you will be saved. As salvation can be found in his name. Praise God for that. That is the gospel. And all of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, speaks of this. How Christ would come one day, God's chosen servant, to save us from our sins. That he would, in fact, be highly exalted as the Prince of Peace. But strangely enough, he would save through suffering great humiliation at the hands of those he loves. Look there at verses 25 to 28. God is sovereign, right? He made everything. He also spoke, right? Who through the mouth of our father David, King David in the Old Testament, a thousand years before Jesus, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Here Peter goes back and he grabs from Psalm chapter 2, which spoke about how the nations in their vanity, though they throw all this violence against God, they rage, but it is all vanity. They rage against God, that is the Lord, and his anointed, that is Christ. This is David writing a thousand years before Jesus, ultimately fulfilled in Christ as the nations raged against God's anointed, that is Jesus. Who do we have there raging? Verse 27, we got Herod Antipas, the Jewish ruler of the people. We got Pontius Pilate, we got the Romans, right? We got the Gentiles, the ruler of Judea. And then of course we got everybody else that was participating, Gentiles and the Jews, the people of Israel. But despite all of their raging, God is sovereign to fulfill his plans. And strangely enough, it is in their rage that God fulfills his plans. They all gather together there in verse 28 to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The prophecy was not here merely a prediction of something that might come to pass, but it was a foretelling of what would come to pass It is by his sovereign hand, his sovereign plan, his determination, his predestination, his foreordination is what the word means. Here again, we see an example of God's sovereignty at work and man's responsibility. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. We see it right here in this passage. Now, we do not have all the details of how exactly those two things work together. But we know from the word of God that God is completely sovereign. He predestines that the nations would rage and that the eternal son would die. It's clearly what's in the passage. But the question many people ask, and I myself have asked in the past, is are humans responsible for their sin then, if God foreordains these things? Think about Herod, think about Pontius, the Gentiles, the people of Israel. The biblical answer is absolutely yes. 
So we can go back to 238. Go ahead and look there. 238. If they were not responsible, right? If the people were not responsible for their sin, why would Peter, full of the Spirit of God, command them to repent of their sin? Call them to save themselves from the crooked generation. It is a real call to repentance because they really have sinned against God. And they really are responsible and guilty for their sins before God. So if you look at Scripture, right, you see these truths clearly presented and regularly presented in Scripture. God is sovereign and the people are responsible for their sin. And these two facts, they do not contradict one another, but instead they complement one another. They don't contradict one another, but they complement one another. Again, we're not sure of how all the details of this work out, works itself out in God's providence and His sovereignty, but it does not mean that we should not think about these things at all. Okay, so if you guys, if you Christians are so tempted to think, oh, this is ridiculous, I'm just not going to think about it, and therefore that's going to make my life easier. Actually, that's not a Christian thing to do. As Christians, we want to think hard about these things, and we want to think deeply about these things, so that we can more, so that we can come to understand more about who our God is, according to the Word, according to what is clear from Scripture. But guys, you know, if your your temptation is to just throw out any understanding of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, we have to remember who it is that we're dealing with. We're dealing with God who is infinite in His glory, whose wisdom and knowledge is, at the end of the day, unfathomable. We have to remember that there are, as Deuteronomy 29.29 says, secret things that belong to the Lord. So don't think that in your pride there ought not be any secret things that belong to the Lord. And then in your frailty, I mean, if you just know, right, there are secret things that you do all the time. You think, why in the world did I do that? Why in the world do I think that? You can't even understand yourself. Why would we think that we can exhaust the knowledge of God or demand that we exhaust the knowledge of God? That God tell us everything there is to know. Or that we reject what He has revealed simply because we cannot know everything else that he has not revealed. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the things that he has revealed, we are responsible for. And we must therefore think hard about these things and think well about these things within the guardrails of Scripture. And we can have confidence in our knowledge. Just because we can't know everything doesn't mean that what we can know is always false. The things that he has revealed are true. You know, some people think wrongly that since God is sovereign, we don't need to do anything at all in terms of action, right? Thinking about divine sovereignty, human responsibility. There's some people think because God is sovereign, therefore we don't need to do anything at all. The passage actually addresses this incorrect notion. Think about that just for a moment. Like, how does this passage address that? How does this passage show us that Christians can believe in God's sovereignty and are to do something? It's on account of God's sovereignty that they do something. It's on account of God's sovereignty that they are on their knees to pray. Did you guys see that? It was their sovereign Christ who charged the disciples to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so they get on their knees and they pray, God help us do what you commanded us to do. It was their sovereign Christ who said, go into the world, make disciples of all nations, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. Is it not the disciples who are sitting there praying, give us boldness by the Spirit? 
And wasn't it the sovereign Christ who promised power from heaven in the Holy Spirit? And they certainly are praying for it. So do we need to do anything if God is sovereign? The answer is clearly yes. God's sovereignty is the very reason why they go instinctually to his throne, calling and trusting him to be who he is and to do all that he has promised to do in Christ. So in light of the earthly rulers, right, Herod and Pilate and the rest of them, they go to the ultimate ruler, knowing, having great confidence that he is the sovereign ruler. Look there in verse 29. Look at what they pray about. Look upon their threats, right? He's asking God to do something and grant. There's another thing, asking God to do something. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This brings us to point number three. Point number three, Christians pray to God who empowers this is in 29 to 30, the verses that I just read. Notice what, what they do not pray for. Notice what they don't pray for, right? If you guys are in trials because of your faith specifically, what might you be tempted to pray for? Well, they don't pray about, Lord, get us out of suffering. Although, just to be clear, Christians, that could be a very fine thing to pray for. There's suffering that Paul experiences, and he prays that God would remove this suffering. He's praying for a health condition there. Uh, they, they do not pray for God to immediately judge those who sin against them. Though we know in Scripture, if you pray, come Lord Jesus, part of what's involved there is God judging the nations, those who reject Him. They don't pray that God will give them strength to overthrow the government because God's kingdom comes in a very different way as Christ so evidences. But what, they, what is it that they do pray for? They pray for power and strength to continue speaking the gospel. This here, again, reflects human responsibility. They really strive to embrace their responsibility to do what? To speak and to evangelize. To do what Christ commanded of them. And their example and priorities should, in fact, be our priorities as what they pray about reflects their God-given mission. Right? What they pray about reflects their God-given mission. Just imagine, right, if the apostles prayed for strength to take up arms and overthrow the government. You can imagine that the pastoral prayer would look very different. Imagine, or, you know, imagine if the apostles, they prayed, Lord, get us out of earthly suffering, bring us into wonderful earthly circumstances, and that's what they primarily prayed about. Well, that too would shape our pastoral prayers, wouldn't it? That would shape, I assume, all of your guys' prayers. But they don't pray about these things. And so, in general, we do not as well. These were followers of Jesus. And what do they do? They pray for boldness to herald the gospel of Jesus. And they do so in full recognition that the word of the gospel is God's chosen instrument to save his people, to build his church, to establish his kingdom. What establishes God's kingdom is not seizing the throne. And it is not in God's mind to have us establish our own comfortable kingdoms here on earth. What is in God's mind is the ingathering of repentant sinners from the furthest reaches of the nations to the deepest depths of sinners to reconcile those whom he is calling. What is on God's mind is that his church, that includes us, would go about preaching the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And so as we pray, as the apostles pray here, 
we, we are encouraged to pray for boldness, bold faithfulness, really, to preach and to herald the word of God. Christian, I hope you find this really freeing, to think of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I hope you find this freeing because you cannot guarantee the outcome of anything, theologically and practically speaking. Right? Just think about the salvation of the lost. You cannot guarantee any outcome. God alone is the one who saves. We cannot convert anybody. It is the Spirit of God who converts and gives the new birth. But what is it that God has placed on your shoulders in relation to His big and glorious mission? He has placed on our shoulders the sharing of the gospel with those He places us around. Evangelism is God's appointed means to reach His end of the salvation of His people. This is why the apostles pray for the seemingly, the seemingly insignificant thing of boldness. Right? It seems almost insignificant, but it is hugely significant in the plan of God. Look, you guys be persecuted by the greatest earthly rulers. You speak the gospel. That right there is the weapon of warfare for God. As he has his church preach the gospel... And as he establishes his kingdom, that is the task of the Christian. That is the task of you, Christian, soldier for Christ. This is why the apostles pray for boldness in preaching the gospel. They receive the mission from the Lord as servants of the sovereign Lord, it says. And they ask for fresh courage to testify to his name knowing that there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. Their boldness, right, is in connection with their big God, whose will can never be thwarted, who empowers his people with the spirit to fulfill their task. And what does God do? Look there in verse 31. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, sign of, a, of the presence of God. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, to do what? What for? And continue to speak the word of God with boldness. And you see there the things there in verse 30, right? They pray for boldness and they say, While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus, God just continues to do that through the book of Acts. Signs and wonders are performed through the hands of the apostles, all by God's determination, by the power of the Spirit. But it is they who are to speak the word with boldness. So thinking about application here, given who he is, right, sovereign, loving creator, who will do all that he has promised in Christ, let us then call on him to help us remain faithful to speak the word. I hope you see that a huge part of being faithful to speak the word is to know the word, right? Practical application. If you're going to pray for boldness to speak the word, you got to know the word. You got to know the word. Jesus told the same to his disciples, right? When Christ was preparing his disciples for his departure in John 14, he encourages them towards faithfulness. He knows he's going to disappear, go away. And he tells them what will provide them confidence instead of fear. Why you ought not be troubled, disciples. He says there, though I am going, I will send the Spirit, and he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. Do not be afraid. God so moves by His Spirit. He brings them into the teaching of Christ by the Spirit, which we now have in the Word of God. Right? We have this in the Word of God. And so now we need not be troubled. 
because he has led his disciples into truth, and they, being carried along by the Spirit, wrote and gave us the truth. So, friends, you guys know that you know his purposes in the Word. We know that Christ is the fulfillment of God's promises. We know where God is taking all things. We know how the war ends. We know how sinners can be saved through faith in Christ. We know for a fact that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We know that God will move to vindicate his own name. And in so doing, he vindicates all of his people. This is how we have confidence. Because our God, the sovereign ruler, reigns. And we know this from the word of God. This is the example of the apostles. Jesus not only told them that the Spirit would lead them into all truth, he also promised to give them the very words to speak when they were going to be interrogated. Right? Jesus speaks of the future here in Luke chapter 12. He says, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Guys, you realize that Acts chapter 3 and 4 is in partial fulfillment of these very words of Jesus. Acts chapter 4, 20 says, We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Christian, knowing the word of God helps you speak the word of God with boldness. How do you speak of anything if you don't know? God has given us his word that we would know. So when you personally, when you personally know that Christ is worthy of all glory and honor, and praise that he is the creator and sustainer of all things you think that's going to help you know of how to speak of him as creator and sustainer and provider who has creator rights over all things when you know that you yourself have rebelled against christ the king over and over again but yet god persists in compassion pursuing you and other sinners over and over again Friends, you realize that that's going to help you speak of your Savior's compassion and mercy to you and to other sinners. When you know that Christ is a fulfillment of God's covenant love, as Christ the eternal Son took on flesh to die on the cross for the forgiveness of all who would repent of their sins and believe, that's going to help you speak to your non-Christian friend about the height and depth, the width and breadth of God's love for you and for all of his people. So as we conclude here, let me encourage you to read the word with a prayerful attitude. Praying that the very spirit who moved to produce the word of God that we have would help you read and understand the word. Pray that the spirit would so embolden you then to speak of what the spirit has already revealed to us in the word. A couple of suggestions here. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. If you're looking for somewhere to start, read, for example, Genesis. You definitely see the sovereignty of God. You see his righteousness. You see his mercy. You see God is a God of covenant faithfulness who is faithful even when we are not. You see all of these things in the book of Genesis. And uh, if, you're, if you've never read the book of Genesis, let me encourage you to uh, find the sermons on our website. You can listen to the sermon and then read the corresponding passage. Listen to the next sermon. Read the corresponding passage. Just walk through the book of Genesis so that you would know your God more. Another example here or another uh, thing you can do is just simply read the passage that's going to be preached. So next week, I'll be preaching on Acts chapter 4, 32 to 37. 
Acts chapter 4, 32 37. It's in your bulletin there. And that'll help you prepare yourself to hear what the Word says. In terms of something that's outside of the Bible, a great book to help you understand more clearly about how Christ is the fulfillment of all of His promises is a book called God's Big Picture. God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. Super simple book to read, maybe 120 pages. I encourage you to get that, read it with other Christians. You see how throughout history, in the Old Testament, we see how it's all ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. How the law is fulfilled in Jesus. The law demands righteousness and exposes sin. Christ is our righteousness who forgives us of our sin. The prophets speak of Christ. Christ the Messiah speaks of the chosen one, the servant who will, who will die as a substitute for his people, being pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He'll be the prince of peace to come and to rule and to reign in righteousness and establish his rule to the ends of the earth. And all the people of the world will come and gather to worship him. You can think of the Psalms. Many written by the kings of Israel. King David, for example. There too, they point, as our passage mentions as well, Christ is the ultimate king over his people. The one who is exalted. The one who sits now at the right hand of God with everything under subjection to his name. Anyways, that's an excellent book for you guys to pick up. Vaughn Roberts' God's Big Picture. So friends, let me conclude here and ask, where is your confidence? If you are suffering in in the midst of trials, well here, these Christians remind us that confidence is found in God, the sovereign ruler. And with that, let's pray now. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we know that there are many difficult circumstances in this life, just as you said there were going to be. And just we know as just as we know that there is living in this sinful and fallen world. But Lord, we thank you that hope is not found here on this earth, because there would be no hope if hope was supposedly found in man. We know, Lord, that hope is not found in this world as well, which is held in subjection until the coming of Christ. We thank you, Lord and God, that you are the sovereign one. We thank you that you are the one who hears prayers. We thank you that you are the one who rules over all. That you are the one who empowers. You are the one who shows up. Lord, we know that you are the one who who has given us our charge to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth Bring it to our neighbors and our friends. So, Lord, we do pray that you would give us boldness to speak your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us turn to your word and your wisdom so that we would know you more and so that we would speak of you more. We thank you, God, that you have not left us in the dark, but instead you have given us your word. You have revealed yourself to us. We pray, God, that by your spirit we would be guided by it, guided by your word all the more. These things we pray in your name. Amen.